Africa rise and shine Africa zorka Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting live from Johannesburg in South Africa. This is the final hour of Africa Rise and Shine on this Wednesday. We're on the frequencies 6145 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. My name is Asanda Mazaunyani. I'm hosting the show and I'm with Anne Musa, Amanda. Uh, and Makura. Taking a look at what's coming up this hour on Africa Rise and Shine, UN Envoy briefs the Security Council on the situation in Ivory Coast, concerns over violent actions by a pro-government militia in Burundi, and Lesotho Prime Minister urges his predecessor to return home. In economics, South African Airways wants to focus on growing its African network and in sports, FIFA Under-20 World Cup reaches the knockout stage. Those stories coming up. First, let's get the news though. Here's Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. The United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, Ziad Rahad al-Hussein, says increasingly violent and threatening actions by a pro-government militia in Burundi could tip an already extremely tense situation over the edge. Al-Hussein has urged authorities to take immediate action to rein in the militia called the Imbone Rakure after receiving worrying reports from Burundian refugees who have fled to neighboring countries. Show and Rice Peace reports. In a statement, High Commissioner Zaidrad Al-Hussein says his office received up to 50 calls daily from frightened people across the country pleading for protection or reporting abuses, which include summary executions, abductions, torture, death threats and intimidation. His comments come after interviews conducted with refugees in camps in Rwanda and the DRC. Numerous refugees claimed threats had been scrawled across the doors and walls of their homes before they fled. Al-Hussein says he's received consistent testimonies that Mbonerakure members operate under instructions from the ruling party and with the support of the national police and intelligence services. Islamic State militants claimed claimed to have seized full control of Libya's coastal city of Sirte and a steam power plant near the city from the Libya Dawn militia. The U.S.-based site intelligence group quotes a report in which a division of the terrorist group calling itself the Tripoli provinces, the terrorists had seized the last locations of Libya Dawn militants in the northern city. The militants, which emerged in Libya by releasing a video in February that showed the beheading of 21 Egyptian Christians, seized the civilian an airport insert last month. A delegation of Libya's elected parliament has meanwhile arrived in Germany to discuss with European and North African officials a United Nations proposal to form a unity government. This despite some lawmakers rejecting the plan and withdrawing from the talks. On Monday, UN Special Envoy Bernardino Leon presented a fourth proposal for a peace plan and unity cabinet after months of talks in Morocco. Polling stations have opened as some Zimbabweans go to polls to vote in parliamentary by-elections. 
The Zimbabwe Electoral Commission says six provinces will be voting today to fill 16 seats in the lower house of parliament. The seats were left vacant after the main opposition MDC recalled 14 rebels following an attempt to oust party leader Morgan Changarai. The two remaining seats were left vacant following expulsions in Zanopiev. The Movement for Democratic Change is boycotting the elections, saying the conditions are not conducive for a free poll. And finally, military top brass from Nigeria and surrounding countries have met to thrash out plans to take on Boko Haram. This after the militants struck again in the country's far northeast, killing 15 people. The meeting of chiefs of defense staff from Nigeria, Niger, Chad and Cameroon, plus a high-level military official from Benin, came before talks between heads of state and government tomorrow. The military meeting was held to determine strategies for a new African Union-backed regional force against the rebels. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zorza. Africa, amuka na unai. Uh, Africa Rise and Shine. Yeah, this is Channel Africa. You are tuned in to the voice of the African. Renaissance, we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Good morning to you. I'm Asanda Matsaunyani. The special representative of the Secretary General for Côte d'Ivoire, Aichatu Mindaudo, says if the planned November polls go well, then that country would be back on the track of stability and development. The special representative of the West African nation was briefing the Security Council yesterday on the situation in that country. Côte d'Ivoire is recovering from a political crisis and violence that followed the refusal of former President Luang Babo to concede defeat in the 2010 presidential election. More from Mindadu. I've told the Security Council that I'm confident and optimistic for Côte d'Ivoire, even though we should remain prudent. I think uh, it is a country where you can find the stability and also where the security situation has improved a lot and uh, just have to continue monitoring and then also to remain prudent. You mentioned progress in terms of political dialogue. We see the rise of coalitions, opposition coalitions. How is the political climate in Côte d'Ivoire? So the political climate as of today, I can tell you, is a little bit tense for a simple reason. Um, I told the Security Council that the political dialogue uh, has been going on and it uh, brought around the table a lot of uh, opposition political parties and they are discussing with the government on issues uh, very important for them such as the release of the prisoners such as uh, the, the, the conditions uh, to uh, organize fair and free elections and so but at the same time you have some political parties we can call the hardliners who, instead of joining the political dialogue, prefer to go to demonstrations in the, in the streets and so. 
And today, I heard that some demonstrations went on in, in Côte d'Ivoire, but uh, the overall situation is that the political climate is uh, really uh, stable and then it is very calm. You've been very active, uh, making use of your good offices also to contribute to the calm situation that exists today. Can you tell us a little bit about your efforts? Yes, uh, I used the, my good offices mandate, mainly, you know, uh, with regard to the political dialogue, because uh, it uh, is very important in uh, the situation of Cote d'Ivoire that uh, the government and the opposition political parties sit together and then discuss the issues instead of going uh, to demonstrations and then to, to uh, really very strong words uh, which uh, cannot give confidence to the populations. Because today in Côte d'Ivoire, what the populations need is a kind of confidence and they need also signal coming from the political leaders telling them that they are not going back to the situation they, they faced in 2010. So I used this mandate to bring them together around the table and then to make them discuss. Another area of, uh, in which uh, I used the good offices mandate is uh, with regard to the social cohesion, you know, uh, in the villages and then in the regions. So you can find in some communities still uh, some conflicts going on conflicts mainly related to the situation they have known in 2010. So there also I had to go and then to sit down with them to make them uh, talk to each other and then commit themselves that they will uh, really drop all the grievances they, they have and then to uh, live together because in any case they do not have any other choice than to live together. So. When returning to these communities, have you noticed that there has been progress and healing? Yes, there definitely has been uh, progress because uh, in two years I visited almost all the areas of, of Côte d'Ivoire. So in some areas the problems were not as deep as in uh, other areas. And also sometimes the population will call and say, oh, ask madame to come because we are facing this problem. And also in some situations, the local authorities will say, oh, you know, she should come because you, you, you are the only ones who can come, sit down with the population, speak to them, and then they will listen to you. Yes, indeed, uh, the situation has evolved. And also there has been some healing. And the mission is well received? The mission is well received now, mm. yes. You came before the Security Council at a time where the mission is up for a renewal. What is it that you're hoping to see with the renewal of the mission's mandate? No, you know, with the, the renewal of the mission mandate, I think the most important is the signal that uh, is uh, given by the international community, the signal of its support to the ongoing process in Côte d'Ivoire. As you know, uh, those uh, 2015 elections will be the turning point for Côte d'Ivoire. If those elections go well, it means that Côte d'Ivoire is back on the track of stability and development. 
That's uh, Chatu Mindado, Special Representative of the Secretary-General for Côte d'Ivoire, talking to UN Radio's Christina Silvero. A United Nations human rights chief says increasingly violent and threatening actions by a pro-government militia could tip Burundi over the edge. Civil unrest broke out in the country in April following the president's announcement to run for a third term. The UN Human Rights Office says it has been receiving about 40 to 50 calls every day from frightened Burundians all across the country pleading for protection or reporting abuses by the militia known as the Imbonerakure. Serious human rights violations have also been reported against refugees in neighboring countries who attempted to flee the violence. Cecil Poili is spokesperson for the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. Tells us more. Well, there are different kinds of allegations. They include summary executions, allegations of abductions, torture, beatings, death threats, and all kinds of forms of intimidations. So very serious allegations indeed against this pro-government militia in Burundi. And you have received uh, around 40 to 50 calls from frightened people. What did they tell you about the serious abuse committed by the militia? Well, they paint a very disturbing picture of abuses. As you said, we interviewed our staff, human rights staff, interviewed 47 people who are in refugee camps in Rwanda and the DRC. Uh, one of them told us his house was attacked at night by Inbonerakure members and his father stabbed to death because he had refused to join the ruling party. Another one told us he had been abducted and tortured by four members of the same militia. And we also had a testimony from a female refugee who said she was beaten up at night in her house uh, by the same militia and her husband was arrested and he remains unaccounted for. And you have also recalled this testimony of uh, a 19-year-old refugee from Makamba province who said that his house was attacked and looted at night by Imbanarakure members. Does it mean that those who are not from the ruling party, CNDDFDD, are treated? Well, it seems like people who refuse to join the, the ruling party are targeted. Uh, we also had another example from one refugee interviews in the DRC who explained that he saw uh, marks on houses, including on houses of five different families, uh, with a message saying that, do you accept to be part of the ruling party? So it seems indeed that these attacks at night are meant to intimidate people or force them to join the and Nimurid refugees claim that trips had been written across the doors and walls of their own houses. That is frightening, isn't it? It's absolutely frightening, especially if you think about Burundi's history. I mean, you know, it's been a very heavy history, a very heavy past, and we um, we really fear that all these past 10 years of um, largely successful peace-building efforts are turning into nothing, are really are being destroyed now, and that there is a risk that Burundi could be uh, sent back to civil war just because a small number of people want to retain or gain power at any cost. Cecile Puy, the UN Human Rights Office has also received persistent allegations of collision between members of the Mbanarakure militia and the official police. Are they receiving instruction at the highest level of the state? 
We have indeed received uh, uh, persistent and consistent information indicating that these militia operate under instructions from the ruling party and with the support of both the national police and the intelligence services. They get from them weapons, vehicles, and even at times uniforms. Uh, that's uh, Cecile Poili, a spokesperson for the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, talking to you in radio's Alpha Diallo. This is Africa Rise and Shine here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Good morning and thank you for tuning in. I'm Asanda Matsaunyani. Meanwhile, presidential and parliamentary elections have been postponed in Burundi following weeks of unrest in the capital over President Pierre Nkurunziza's bid for a third term in office. The country's electoral commission has proposed the 26th of this month as the date for parliamentary elections and July the 16th for the presidential election. For more on this, Janine Kutsa spoke to Dr. Yolande Buka, a researcher on conflict prevention and risk analysis at the Nairobi branch of the Institute for Security. Studies. One aspect that people tend to forget that even if Nkurunziza were to step down today, he still do not have the conditions in which to hold free and fair elections. In order to have free and fair elections in the country, you need a few elements, including a free press, an independent press. You need a civil society that is able to thrive and provide checks and balances for the executive and the government, and an opposition that is free to campaign throughout the country without fear of repercussion, harassment, or arrest from the government. At the moment, in Burundi, this is not the case. And in fact, the last elections were not, in my opinion, free and fair elections in Burundi because you did have cases where the opposition was harassed by the ruling party. Therefore, as we move in this transition in Burundi where we try to see where people can negotiate to find a political solution to this problem, we need not to forget the importance of having the institutions that will allow Burundians to go to the poll with the choice that they want and unhindered from picking the joys that they want. It's all good. We talk about theory and good conditions and level playing fields and so on. What does one do in the interim to overcome the crisis in Burundi? As I say, we talk about this, what should be done, that should work, etc., etc. But the status quo is something completely different. I think early warning needs to start very much earlier than it does at the moment. A year ago, people started to be worried about Nkurunziza's attempt to run for a third mandate. But nobody mentioned the about two to three years of post-election violence that she had in Burundi. And for the sake of short-term stability, we've sacrificed the long-term political consolidations in Africa, and particularly in Burundi. So we need to pay attention, particularly in post-conflict states who have a very high rate of potential to relapse into violence, to keep an eye on the situation. To what extent are laws being manipulated to further constrain the opposition? Such laws were passed in Burundi. To what extent is the government trying to constrain the media? Such law was passed in Burundi. And I can go on and these laws are passed without really a peep or really a reaction from the international community. So in between elections is actually the time where we need to prepare for the next term, particularly in post-conflict settings. What about the role of the regional economic communities, the Great Lakes area where Burundi is based, neighboring countries? What role could these voices play in solving crises like these? I think their role is very important. The problem, however, is that each of these countries also have their own 
own problems. If we look at Rwanda, for instance, Rwanda is not a hallmark of democracy. So the priority of Rwanda will be to maintain stability in the region over democratization in Burundi. And the same is the case for uh, Uganda, for instance. I think the role of regional actors is crucial, but oftentimes leaders look at short-term political gains over the stability of the region. I think there was a sense that if Burundi were to fall into a crisis, a political crisis, it would definitely have repercussions on the region. And here we are with over 100,000 refugees in Rwanda, Tanzania, and Uganda and the DRC, which was foreseeable. Yet the leaders, because of their political priorities domestically, how do you encourage free press? How do you encourage the free movement of opposition and civil society in other countries when you don't have that reality in yours? It's quite a challenging balance to have with the regional organization. So what is going to happen to Burundi? How do you see things develop in days and weeks to come? Prediction is quite difficult. One thing is for sure is that the longer the crisis lasts in Burundi, the more difficult it will be to then bring back the partners at the negotiation table for a political solution to the problem. The more the conflict class, maybe the opposition movement is dying down in Burundi. People are tired. They've been protesting for weeks, but you also see more pockets throughout the countries of people rising up. And we don't have enough information about what's going on in the periphery of Bujumbura. And if it lights up really on the outskirts of the city and in the region, then we could see a very dangerous situation for the country and for the region. I respect that you say predictions are very difficult, but for somebody like you that's really following closely what's happening there, is it likely that elections will take place, that the president will be re-elected? How do you see things evolve in weeks to come? I can only speak to you in terms of possibilities because I think anyone who's followed the situation in Burundi in the past two months has been surprised at the twists and turns that have taken place in the country. One thing has remained the same, however, is the ruling party's decision that Nkurunziza will run for a third mandate. At the current moment, the post-coup developments have entrenched him in power, and he could very well decide to run in spite of the opposition. They say that they are going to collect money from different departments of the government in order to fund the elections regardless of the support of the international community. So they could very well do that. However, it will also depend then in terms of his legitimacy, whether the African Union, whether the East African community recognize those elections, particularly that have encouraged that the elections only take place once a, a political solution has been found. That's Dr. Yolande Bokai, researcher with the Nairobi branch of the Institute for Security Studies, talking to Channel Africa's Janine Kutza. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. This is Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning to you if you've just joined us. Uh, This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Former COSATU General Secretary Zuelin Zimavavi has said that it's now inevitable that a new Labour Federation will be formed in the country. This follows the failure of the National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, NUMSA's bid in the High Court in Johannesburg yesterday to participate in COSATU's Special National Congress next month. NUMSA's last option is to appeal against its expulsion at COSATU's Ordinary National Congress in November. However, Vavi has pointed out that the absence 
statements of NUMSA and other unions from next month's special congress is a clear sign of this development. To talk more on this, we are joined now by political analyst Theo Fenter. Good morning to you, Theo. Good morning. Thanks for making time to chat to us. Now, firstly, as uh, per Vavi's admission, would you say that the writing had been on the wall ever since NUMSA was expelled from uh, the country's largest federation to start a a labor federation? Yes, absolutely. It's it's like a divorce. Uh, Although um, NUMSA is just suspended, I think the only thing that was still um, outstanding was signing the divorce papers um, because the the breakdown in, in the relationships and the breakdown between NIMSA and, and the rest of, of Kusatu has been, has been almost um, finalized, especially when NIMSA, or when Kusatu allowed um, a second union in the slot where NIMSA used to be Limasa, uh, uh, like a small little union for, for the metal industry where NIMSA used to be. What does this uh, mean, this, this suspension mean for COSATU? Is it a good thing? Well, no. I think um, it, it, is, it is, like Vavi said, um, it is the beginning of some fundamental changes within, within COSATU. Now, the, the request that NUMSA made to the Supreme Court yesterday was to be allowed to this special national congress uh, to state its case, um, but I think the ruling said that uh, a special national congress has got one or two functions, and uh, their request to be part of that as a suspended union just wasn't on. And uh, I think they tried this, and they tried to do it very, very strongly when changes in leadership took place within NUM. Um, where the new leadership is a little bit more sympathetic towards the position of of uh, of NIMSA's suspension as well as the suspension of Mr. Vavi. And basically what, what happened, if you look at it politically, is Kusato got rid of one of two dissenting voices. Um, and if we look very carefully, down, down deep at the bottom of it all, it's a man called Mr. Jacob Zuma. When, when, uh, when, when Zuma was elected in 2007 at Polokwane, Kusatu was one of the big, big um, agents for that change, together with Malema and a few other guys. Now, since then, most of them got out of the ANC or changed their view of, of uh, the, the leadership role of Mr. Zuma. And I think the most vocal... Of the of these voices were the voice of Irvin Jim and Numsa and Vavi and Kusat just got rid of them, and I think there's a very strong political game behind the scenes apart from the role of the unions, and that is to represent uh, members on the ground and to negotiate for better wages and these kind of things. They got themselves tangled up in a huge political dilemma, and that is the big problem. I think that is what Vavi is referring to when he talks about a new Kusatu, a new structure that must emerge. In the last decade, we've seen a rise in strikes for wages. Um, it's, it's not a matter of if, but when this Labour Federation is formed. How will this affect the country's investors' confidence? 
And at first, uh, we will see um, uh, instability because uh, what what we're already seeing is that NIMSA, when when they got suspended, started um, getting members from other unions and getting uh, competing for 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 new membership on the ground. We must also remember that AMCO, that is not part of Kusatu, also added to this like a new kid on the block, um, competing for membership, and and that creates an unstable situation because it means that on the shop floor there's a huge competition for for membership and um, that brings um, uncertainty to to the investor community um, but over the long term when when a new federation emerge or around the the NIMSA structure a new group um, will emerge I think stability will return but the labor situation in South Africa is one of our vulnerabilities vis-à-vis the investor community. Speaking of a new group that will emerge, there were talks of a workers' party being initiated by the Economic Freedom Fighters and NUMSA. Is this likely to happen? Yes, I think very much so towards the, especially the local government elections next year middle of next year that will be a very interesting testing ground for a new for a new party to the left of the ANC uh, in preparation for national elections in 2019 um, I think all previous breakaways from the ANC um, always happened too short before a national election uh, COPE is a good example and a few others they just did not have time to prepare for um, a structuring of a political party that, that requires a lot of funds, requires a lot of work, and requires a lot of structure. And I think in this case, they've got, a, they've got almost like a laboratory test next year. Uh, how well can they, can they do uh, and how well can they fare in, in local elections towards uh, a national election? So, yes, absolutely, I think. But the question is also complicated because... When you look at NUMSA uh, and, and, it, and the so-called United Front, which is the working name they're using for a new political structure, and the EFF, there is, again, going to be competition for leadership. Um, and, and if you put um, a few strong leaders like Vavi and Malema and, and Evan Jim in the same kind of um, committee or whatever, uh, I think there's a huge um, challenge for these guys to work together and to pull in the same direction. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to leave it there. Thanks for chatting to us this morning, Theo. My pleasure. That's South African political analyst Theo Fenta joining us there on the line. It's 8.30 Central African time here on Africa Rise and Shine. That means news headlines with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Increasingly violent and threatening actions by pro-government militia in Burundi could tip and already extremely tense situation over the edge. A delegation of Libya's elected parliament arrives in Germany to discuss a United Nations proposal to form a unity government. And polling stations open in Zimbabwe for parliamentary by-elections. Those are the stories making headlines.
Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Culture and Joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi, informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigikonyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Remember, you can send us your views about our show. You can email info at channelafrica.co.za. We'd love to hear from you. The African Union is reviewing country contributions and searching for alternative funding methods as it strives to claim its independence by not relying on foreign donors. Several alternative forms of funding have been proposed that could see ordinary Africans in some countries paying the AU bill. These include charging a tourism and an SMS levy. Critics have slammed the proposals, saying the poor should not be paying for the continental body. Funding the AU will be under the spotlight when heads of states attend the African Union Summit in Johannesburg later this week. Mathatse Gellens has more. Money gives power and influence. Those paying the piper are calling the tune. This has been the biggest weakness facing the continental body. At times, divisions have emerged as foreign donors flex their financial muscle and push their own interests, making the African solutions to African problems a pipe dream. Two-thirds of the African Union budget comes from foreign donors, mostly the European Union and Americans. Its headquarters in Addis Ababa were donated by the Chinese. Zuele Tumadala is the Secretary of the Pan-African Parliament. The European Union support for the African Union is in the region of 95% of the political programs and almost 30% of the staff. In other words, the African Union is not uh, financed and therefore not managed by Africans but by donors. The 2015 African Union budget stands at 522 million US dollars. This excludes close to a billion dollars it would need for peace and security on the continent. Foreign donors have picked up the tab for stabilizing hotspots. For a long time, Five countries, South Africa, Algeria, Libya, Egypt and Nigeria, accounted for 75% of the money coming from African states. International Relations Minister Maite Nguana Mashabani says they are now reviewing member contributions. When we started, it was really on proportional uh, capacity of the countries to pay. So there are some countries that have emerged, uh, not only from war situation, but whose uh, revenue has become much, much better and they can contribute much more, which were not necessarily on the scale where South Africa, uh, Egypt, uh, Nigeria and others were. So they have come out and said, count on us. We want to be at the same scale because we think now we are much better than we were. Last year, the heads of states decided it was time to end the financial dependency. They adopted recommendations by a panel led by former Nigerian President Olusegun Obasanjo on alternative funding. 
The panel recommended a $10 taxation on every flight ticket within the continent and $2 for every night spent in a hotel. The other alternative is for half a cent on every SMS to go to the AU. Some countries are looking at taxes from their oil and mineral exports. Madala says each state will have the final say on where it gets the money. In terms of the new uh, formula of payment, which is an increase, a member state can pay from its own treasury, in other words, vote money and pay. Or if now a country has a problem of revenue, that is where now the alternative sources of funding come coming into into being. It is the proposal of an SMS levy that has drawn sharp criticism. It is estimated it could raise 1.6 billion US dollars a year. Why should Africans take pride in funding an entity which bears little if any significance to the ordinary African on the street? Advocate Sabelo Sibanda is an avid observer of the African Union. So necessarily we want to burden those who are already dependent in as far as um, financial resources are concerned with carrying the African Union. Because look at it this way. For the middle class, if they decide not to go into any hotel or decide not to fly and just use contracts and do voice calls, they're not paying anything as such towards the African Union. Sibanda agrees that the AU should be self-sufficient, but argues African leaders must stop the illicit flow of money estimated at 100 billion US dollars a year. If we can basically plug that hole whereby multinational companies especially are milking the continent and making sure that they engage in a practice generally referred to as tax evasion, We will get out of this situation that we are in and the continent will be able to fund itself through the taxes that it should be getting from these multinationals. For the first time, the African Union has invited business to its summit, hoping they will open their wallets for the AU. Nkwana Mashabani says their response to the Ebola crisis shows they are willing to help. When we say we have cooperating partners, we're talking about business from somewhere contributing to their national fiscals and then donating to us. Of course, those who pay the, the, the pipers who are going to then call the tune. So we are encouraging business to be interested in the developmental programs of their continent. We saw this becoming very successful through the AU Foundation when we had the Ebola outbreak in less than a week. Uh, the uh, AU Foundation managed to collect more than 40 million from dollars from from. African business. If the AU gets it right and funds itself, this could drastically change the power relations with the West and how the continent responds to conflicts. The money can be used to operationalize a continental standby force that will intervene in crises without having to wait on the West. I'm Mashadze Gallens in Johannesburg. Now on that same story, we ask our question of the day on this Wednesday here on Africa Rise and Shine. While the AU has been preaching African independence and talking tough against what the continent's leaders see as an attempt by former colonialists to continue controlling Africa, the organization still relies heavily on international donors for funding. AU Chairperson Kosa Zanaglamini Zuma commissioned an investigation into ways for Africa to increase its financial independence 
months after arriving at a new post in Addis Ababa in 2012. So our question today is, what is the best way for the African Union to raise funds? Give us your answers, your thoughts. You can email them, info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS to plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero, or you can get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa One. Let's hear from you. What is the best way for the African Union to raise funds? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Africa comes live to you from Johannesburg weekdays from 5 a.m. till 9 a.m. Central African time. Lesotho Prime Minister Pakalita Musisidi has called on his predecessor and leader of now opposition All Basutu Convention ABC Tom Tabane to return home for talks, assuring him of his safety. Tabane BNP leader Tisede Masiribane and RCL leader Keke Zoranzo fled, saying they fear for their lives. Musisidi insists that claims government is refusing Tabane security and that soldiers arrested for mutiny are being kidnapped is a deliberate lie campaign to cause confusion and discredit Lesotho. The capital Masiru police quelled a march yesterday by opposition supporters intended to deliver a petition showing contempt for what they say is Musisidi's stand on these issues. Ntakane Ngadane reports from Masiru. At least six soldiers have been arrested and former Prime Minister Tom Tabani and two other opposition leaders are still on the run. Now the Prime Minister wants to set the record straight. He says information is being distorted to deliberately portray a negative image of his government. Musisidi dismissed allegations that he denied former Prime Minister Tabani security. He says he's waiting for him to set a date for talks. On the army arrests, the government insists that the army is applying the rule of law by arresting soldiers suspected of a mutiny. Prime Minister Pagadita Musisidi. Power to arrest and detain offending and suspected members into military Custody. He has lambasted those who questioned his government for reappointing the army commander Tladika Mudi. Bakarita Musisidi didn't mince his words. Non-interference in each other's internal or domestic affairs. Supporters of mainly Basutu National Party BNP and all Basutu Convention ABC organized a march to protest. Police approved their permit but on a different route. They gathered in defiance. Police had to intervene. BNP Deputy Leader Zhuang Mulapo says the army is out of order and it must be stopped. Mulapo says the government must admit that it is failing to deal with the army. The moment you feel that you can no longer have your record, uh, people comment on it. It's, a, it's, it's, it's paramount to an admission on your own part that, you know that there are things now that you need to hide. And if our friends in the international community have asked us 
to step up to the plate and to live up to the standards that we ourselves signed up to. There is nothing wrong with, with that. And uh, we are saddened and worried by the developments that we see. Transformation Resource Center has called on the government to rein in the army. Program manager Linka Tamai. We are disappointed because we want these things, the human rights violations, to, to stop immediately. And not only to stop, but to find out the perpetrators of these human rights violations. The PM should have been aware that the international community has shifted from these concepts, the sovereignty, the non-interference, and, and self-determination, to, to, include non, to include humanitarian intervention. And states can um, interfere when the abuses are done within their member states. Police managed to remove the opposition protesters from the streets and they remain on high alert. I'm Takwana Ngadani in Maseru, Lesotho. Today is Wednesday, June 10, the 161st day of 2015. There are 204 days left in the year. Today in history, in 2004, singer-musician Ray Charles, known for such hits as Georgia, On My Mind, and I Can't Stop Loving You, died in Beverly Hills, California at the age of 73. Georgia Georgia, the whole day through, just an old sweet song, keeps Georgia on my mind. That's Georgia On My Mind by legendary musician Ray Charles, who died in Beverly Hills, California, on this day in 2004. Today, also in 1967, the Middle East War ended as Israel and Syria agreed to observe a United Nations-mediated ceasefire. That's today in history here on Africa Rise and Shine. 8.45 Central African Time. Let's get economics news with Tabiso Lehoko. Gold mining companies in the South African Chamber of Mines and four mine workers unions have agreed to start wage talks for the gold sector on the 22nd of this month. The talks are scheduled to continue for three days. However, the parties could not agree on the chair of the talks or the venue. Chief Negotiator for Gold for the Chamber of Mines, Elisa Stradom, explains what happened in yesterday's talks. Today was what we call the process meeting and we talked about the dates and we did reach agreement that the first of our engagements, formal engagements, will be on the 22nd of June. We also talked about the issue of venue because the Chamber of Mines cannot house so many delegates. We're going to be about 130 people and we were all in agreement that we need a different venue. So we will collectively 
try and agree on a venue, we will be doing that as well. And we also talked about, do we need a chairperson uh, and maybe a facilitator? And we also reached agreement that we will look at that. The South African Airways wants to focus on growing its African network and improving interconnectivity on the continent. SAA says it has a crucial role to play in driving aviation traffic growth and economic development. SAA's acting CEO Nico Bezedenhout has emphasized that the airline's goal is to increase its revenue in the region by 30% in the next 12 months. Bezedenhout was speaking at the International Air Transport Association annual general meeting in Miami. Malawi has put its foot down, underlining there will be no compromise on enforcing the ban on the production, importation, distribution and the use of plastic bags in the country. The June 30th deadline has since been set for compliance. George Mango reports from Blintai and Malawi. The Malawi government banned the use of plastic bags in April 2013, despite that it was not enforced until August last year because plastic manufacturers were given a breather to prepare for the ban. Just last year, when government wanted to enforce the ban, plastic manufacturers challenged the enforcement in court. They argued that then Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Halima Daud, had extended the ban to June. The overnight crash of copper markets might pose a threat to copper mining companies. Economic experts fear the metal that used to be the ultimate cash cow for thieves might be greatly affected by the slowdown in new growth strategies for emerging markets, especially China. Recently, copper market crashed to its lowest level since the 2008 financial crisis. Zambia's Labour Minister Faxon Shamenda says casualization deprives the Zambian employee the dignity and benefits of being a worker. Shamenda has at the 18th annual general meeting appealed to human resources experts to help the government in implementing labour laws once parliament amends the labour laws. He says the scourge must be fought by all well-meaning Zambians as it deprives the Zambian employee the dignity of being a worker. One US dollar will cost you 1244 South African Rand. 983 with Zonapula, 715 in Zambia, 65 British pound, 89 euro. On commodities market, platinum $1105, gold $1176 an ounce, brand crude $65, 25 cents a barrel. Economic update on Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Let's get sports news with Musibudi Makura.
Thank you, Sanda. Good morning. Sports fans, one of the men on Interpol's wanted list in connection with the worldwide FIFA corruption scandal has turned himself in. Alejandro Buzaco, who was dismissed as the president of the Argentine sports marketing company, Tones Y. Corpentisas, uh, last week, handed himself over to the Italian authorities on Tuesday. He is one of the 14 current and ex-FIFA officials and associates indicted in the United States Department of Justice. Justice investigation into rampant, systematic and deep-rooted corruption in world football. Buzako is alleged to have conspired to win and keep hold of lucrative media rights contracts from regional football federations by paying up to 110 million US dollars in bribes. Interpol have issued red notices for the arrest of five other men for racketeering, conspiracy as well as corruption. Fellow sports marketers Hugo Yenkes, Marino Yankees and Jose Mugeles, as well as former FIFA executive members Jack Warner, as well as Nicolas Leos. Nigerian Football Federation has urged the Flying Eagles to reenact the magic that saw them defeating all the German teams they played in their friendly matches during the team's three weeks camping in the European country when they meet in one of the second-round matches of the ongoing FIFA Under-20 World Cup in New Zealand tomorrow. Nigeria will meet Germany in Christchurch. NFF Secretary General Mohamed Sanusi says the fact that the team had their final preparations in a camp in Germany would offer them a good advantage over the Germans, stressing that they would have nothing to fear against the European champions. Sanusi noted that the lessons of the Flying Eagles stay in Germany would put them in a position to contain their opponents as they are already familiar with the playing patterns. In the other matches, Mali will take on Ghana. A little later in the day, Colombia will tackle the United States in what ought to be a very open encounter, while the Ukraine and Senegal will bring their contrasting styles to play in Auckland. So on football news, George Lewanda Mina, the newly elected Zambia senior men's team coach, admitted he knows very little about Guinea-Bissau, but is confident Zambia will get a favourable home result on Saturday in the two sides opening 2017 Africa Cup of Nations Group B qualifier. Luanda Mina took charge of Zambia on Monday following the dismissal of Ona Yanza after 10 months in charge as interim coach. The meeting will also be the two sides' first, or rather debut clash. Luanda Mina kicked off his first day at office on Tuesday morning with his first training session at the Arthur Davis Tennis, or rather Arthur Davis Stadium in Kitwe, where the team set up base on Monday afternoon. On to volleyball news. The Volleyball Africa Cup of Nations Championships gets underway in Nairobi today. Teams expected to participate in the competition at the Moy International Sports Complex Kasarani include Tunisia, Botswana, Algeria, Cameroon, Mauritius, Morocco, as well as Senegal. China Africa's Francis Motegi is in Nairobi, Kenya, and filed this report. The Kenyan team under head coach Davilunga Hao acknowledges that the North and West Africans, in particular, pose the ultimate threat for Kenya in the qualifier contest. The Kenyan camp was boosted by the arrival of France-based Johnny Washu and Braxidis Agala Gadambi, as well as Massimo Im, who plies her trade in Finland. 
And finally, Netball News. Netball South Africa have announced a team that will do duty at next week's Diamond Challenge taking place in Durban. South Africa will go up against Malawi, Uganda as well as Zambia at the Ugu Sports Centre in Margate from the 16th to the 19th of June. All teams will also represent Africa at the upcoming World Cup in Sydney, Australia. Netball South Africa President Mimim Tatwa says it's important that they do well in the tournament. Look, we take the Diamond Challenge very seriously. First of all, it's hosted here in South Africa, so we wouldn't want uh, to lose uh, to other countries uh, when we're playing uh, in our own backyard. And remember that when the Diamond Challenge was first uh, launched in 2012, we we won it. Also, uh, last year when we faced it, we also won it. So we, we want to make sure that we keep that record. We, we don't want to be uh, moving out to countries when they come and play in, in our own country. The Zaya Sports News at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories from this hour, UN Envoy briefs the Security Council on the situation in Ivory Coast. Concerns over violent actions by a pro-government militia in Burundi and Lesotho Prime Minister urges his predecessor to return home. In economics, South African Airways wants to focus on growing its African network and in sports, FIFA Under-20 World Cup reaches the knockout stage. That's where we end Africa Rise and Shine uh, on this Wednesday. Thank you for listening to our show. That's from me, Asanda Matsaunyane, producers Pumuzola Magadza, technical producer Mario Edwards, as well as the rest of the team. For comments about our show, remember you can send us an SMS, plus 27796957930 is the number to send that to, or you can email info at channelafrica.co.za, tweet us as well at Rise Shine Africa is our handle. Taking us to the top of the hour now for news, here is Jabu Kanyile with a track titled Africa Unite.
Mas é que eu sou 